Well, some of you are confused. You weren't here last week when I really abruptly ended Elliot's song that he wasn't done yet, and he called me out on it, so cheers. Good to see you, good to be with you. We are, if you couldn't tell, officially at that time of year. That time of year where we have all the commercials, all the movies, all the decorations. And we're at that time of year when we gather here together, where we open up that familiar story. And we go through it over and over and over again. Some of us, if you've grown up in the church, you've gone through this story that we're about to crack open yet again. You've gone through it dozens, maybe just so many times. You got it in Sunday school, and then you got it in youth group, and now you got it every single year in church. And maybe some of us, we roll our eyes at the Christmas story, and okay, we're going to do that thing again. If you think that's a little old hat, try preaching about it every single year. The same text, it doesn't change, but I'm supposed to bring something that does change and it's fresh and creative and new. It's, we're all in this together, friends. <laughs> but actually, I enjoy it. I enjoy the fact that the church fathers had the wisdom to institute the church calendar, where they, the church fathers from hundreds and thousands, of, from thousands of years ago are saying, don't forget. Don't forget, it's worth, this story of the incarnation is worth cracking open that same story in those same words, in those same texts, over and over again, every single year, because see, there's something about the incarnation that you'll always find new. The incarnation of Christ, this reality that God became a human being is just absolutely absurd when you think about it. It's crazy. God himself was a fetus in a young woman's womb. I've got four little, not so little, anymore, they're still little kids. I've got four little ones, and I remember, especially with the first pregnancy, once you get to the fourth pregnancy, you're like, Is that, are we done yet? Like, what's going on? Whatever. But the first one, you're like, I meant Sarah would be like, the baby's the size of a coffee, coffee bean. And then the size of a clementine. It's always fruit. And then the size of a melon, yeah, whatever it is. That was God. God was a little fetus, a little child growing in a young woman's womb. And then God, this woman gave birth to God himself. And then that God had to learn how to talk. God, be potty trained. He didn't just magically learn how to do it. This, this is the scandal of the incarnation, and friends, this is why it's worth going through year after year after year, because it's absolutely wondrous. And this is the most unique thing about our faith, about Christianity. A lot of the things about our faith, about Christianity, there's other things like that in other religions. Incarnation, God himself becoming a human being, it's completely and utterly unique to Christianity. And it says so much. 
The incarnation is like this diamond that just has this endless amount of facets to it. And you can just pick which one you want to focus on. So this year, what we're going to be focusing on for the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing on a person who's absolutely foundational and central to the story, but as good Protestants, we really don't talk about very much at all. This, this year, for the, for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this person, the mother of Christ. We're going to be talking about Mary, Virgin Mary. And when we talk about Mary, well, first of all, in the Protestant church, we don't, especially as good evangelicals. Some of you grew up Catholic or maybe do identify as Catholic or are wrestling with that or whatever. And if you grew up Catholic, you heard endless amounts about Mary. Mary on overdrive, right? And then if you grew up Protestant like I did, the only time you heard about Mary was this time of year. She was just kind of this side character in the story of Jesus. And maybe, maybe some of you ladies were, were played Mary in your, ch- your church's Christmas pageant, right? But other than that, the only time we talk about Mary as good Protestants is when we're trashing Catholics for, for overdoing it and going crazy and worshiping Mary, right? I, want, I kind of have this feeling that there's a good middle ground there. That we don't have to worship Mary. That might be a little bit overboard. But we also don't have to kick Mary to the curb and, and have her be a side, side note, footnote in the story of Jesus' birth, in the Jesus story in general. I mean, when you think about the Catholic worldview as at Winter camp for Cub Scouts last week with my boys, and I've got a good friend who actually was Protestant and, turn, and converted to Catholicism. And we have great conversations about why he did that, why, why, whatever. We have great conversations, loving debates. But as I was talking to him about my studies of Mary, he agreed, he, there's just too much there. Like the, the perpetual virginity of Mary, why do we have to do that? Why do we, why do we have to say that Mary's in this perfect, perpetual virginity that she, she and Joseph never had sex. You don't have to do that. That kind of seems like purity culture gone wrong. The assumption of Mary, this extra-biblical idea that Mary never died but she was assumed into heaven, why, we don't have to go there. Or the, the Catholic doctrine that Mary was born without original sin. These are things that I just think they're too far. We don't have to go there. But also... Throwing Mary aside and never talking about her and never featuring her, never learning from Mary is just an unnecessary overreaction. And even when we talk about these two movements and in, in, in where Mary fits in it, for me personally, I've actually never connected with Mary. She's always been kind of an odd, I, I, I have a hard time figuring her out because we know now that I grew up thinking Mary was just this woman, but actually she's probably a 13-year-old girl. What to us would be a 13-year-old girl. And so that disrupted the story for me, and I've just had to take on faith that Mary really did have these reactions and that Mary was able to have this mature yes to God. It doesn't make sense to me how a 13-year-old girl could do that. The Magnificats, Mary's song that we have all these cheery, cheesy versions of in Christmas songs. Mary's song is actually, I think, the most beautiful song in all of scriptures, including the Psalms. 
It's radical. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, brilliant, well-thought-out theological statement about who God is and who he, who he cares about. It blows me away. And then I think of a 13-year-old writing that, and I just don't get it. No offense to you 12 or 13-year-olds. I just don't get it. But earlier this year, I was thinking and listening to some things, and I was thinking about the divine feminine. The divine feminine. Now, some of you, when I say those two words together, you've got that red light in your brain that's going, heretic meter, it's going, it's going, divine feminine. I've got to tell you, let me just, God isn't a man. And some of you are like, of course he is. Look at all those pronouns in the Bible with he, him, all... God's a man. No, let me just, this is going to be shocking. God doesn't have a penis. God is not actually a man. And God is not actually a woman. God is God. God is spirit. God is altogether different. These are ways that help us understand God when we put these pronouns on him. But God... Femin- femininity is, 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 has been created in God's image just as much as masculinity. So yes, my masculinity and what makes me a man actually is beautiful and comes from God. It can be, it can be broken and sinful, and it often is in me and in all sorts of men. But, it, but my masculinity at its pure, purest, truest form is a reflection of God's nature and character and who he is. It's good. In your femininity that you're full of, in its purest, goodest, best form, it can be broken, it can be tainted, but it, the femininity is actually from God just as much as masculinity. It's beautiful and it reflects who God is in its feminine nature. But for way too long, for 2,000 years, us men in the church have been trying to stuff the femininity of God and the femininity of, of, of the, the church, stuff it away. We've, I think we've been a little bit insecure and challenged by it. But in Mary, we get this beautiful picture of divine feminine, of what it looks like to be humble and gentle and fiercely strong right in the midst of it. And so this, in these next few weeks, we're going to be studying this amazing young woman. And we're going to be thinking about her incredible yes to this request of God and how we might find ourselves in that response. We're going to be thinking about the Magnificat in all its radical and scandalous nature. And we're just going to be left to deal with it because Mary had this beautiful picture of God that was inspired And then we're actually, after Christmas, we're going to be thinking about the life of Mary after the birth of Jesus and what happens to her. And we're going to get that from a feminine perspective. As I've been thinking about Mary, I've just been realizing there is actually something about Mary. This only person in the history of humanity who is asked to carry the divine life inside of her. The only person in the history of humanity 
whoever had, who, who had to deliver God himself in a painful and bloody labor and delivery. Mary, the only person in the history of the world who had the task of protecting and caring for and nursing and, and, and guiding and shaping and growing and raising and teaching and potty training, this little boy who was also God himself. This Christmas, we're going to be thinking and reflecting on this Christmas story through, this, through the through the lens of this amazing young woman. Now, as we do that, we're going to begin today. This morning's going to be a little bit more of a history lesson. In order for us to fully understand Mary, to get past what, I've, what I needed, to get past that block, that block of like, 13-year-old girl, really, God, can't you just let her have a slumber party and, and chat with her friends about boys? Leave her alone. Get, get a woman. Until I, that barrier came down and I knew who Mary was in her historical, cultural context, I couldn't, I couldn't figure her out. But once I saw her in that context, it helped me so much. And so this morning, we're going to try to see Mary in her context to help us receive all that she's going to be inviting us into. So let's start out in Luke 1. Luke 1 is a fun chapter. It's, I think it's probably the second longest chapter in the New Testament. It's this epic chapter. What I love one of the things I love about the scriptures, and there's many things that I love about the scriptures, we get not one gospel, but we get four of them. It's like God was speaking to the church fathers because there was debate in the early church, in the first couple centuries of the church, of do we just have, we should have just one gospel. Imagine having this conversation about the Bible. We're putting the Bible together. It'd make more sense and be easier for us to just have one gospel. Then there's no confusion, there's no contradictory stuff. It's just, here it is. But I think God was, the Holy Spirit was speaking. When you talk about the inspiration of scriptures, I think the inspiration happened things like this, where God was informing their process, and he said, no way, I want you to have multiple accounts, because this incarnation, this Jesus who came to earth, is too rich just to have one account. I want to have multiple accounts that complement each other, and I want you to struggle with it. There was debate in the early church, do we have just one epistle? from one person. Let's not have Peter, James, J P Paul, others. Let's, in John, let's, let's have just one person so we can have this uniform theology. And said, so, no, let's actually take the wisdom from all of them. That seems divinely inspired to me. Luke, as we engage in the Gospel of Luke, we find Luke has the, the biggest, longest story of the birth of Jesus. Matthew goes through the genealogy. Mark just skips right over it. John has this tremendously theological perspective of the incarnation, but Luke is a storyteller. Luke's a really good storyteller. And so he begins Luke 1 talking about this man named Zacharias. Zechariah is a priest in Jerusalem, which makes him one of the most important people in the first century Jewish world. Really big deal. And God comes to him while he's serving in the temple, giving, offering sacrifices, and announces, I'm going to, your, your wife, who's old and barren and can't have children, you've given up on that dream, she's going to have a baby. This is a common theme throughout the scriptures. Birth and life comes to the barren womb, which just means there's always hope. Always. Even the driest, deadest places. So the angel comes and announces, 
Zechariah, your wife is going to conceive a baby, and he didn't believe it, and, and, and the priest is having problems with it, and, and so the angel says, fine, I'm going to make you so you can't talk, I'm going to make you mute, and, and this is just kind of a consequence for you not believing. It's, we got this one scene in this familiar place in Jerusalem, in the temple, to the priest, and all of a sudden, it's like, it's like you're watching a movie, right, and you got this one scene. Then that scene ends, and you cut over to a completely different place. Now we go from Jerusalem to Galilee, the region of Galilee in a city, tiny little city called Nazareth. In other words, in Luke's drama that he's building, we have one of the most important people in the, definitely the most important city in the region to Jewish people. When we go over to the mo one of the most unimportant cities, a ragtag, insignificant, tiny little city called Nazareth, to a young woman, a 13-year-old, just minding her own business, really important person, unimportant person. Really important city, unimportant city now. And that's how the story is framed up. Let's read in Luke 1. We're going to start in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now everyone originally reading this would go, oh, wow, interesting. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And so the drama begins. Now before we continue and go deeper into this story, let's just talk about this virgin named Mary. This young woman named Mary. Now, when we talk about a woman who is betrothed to her husband, that's just an antique way of saying she was engaged to this guy named Joseph. And we talk about, when we think about, uh, and we read this about a woman who's engaged, we think of our world. We think of maybe a woman in her, like, people get married later now, so maybe in her mid-20s to mid-30s, maybe even 40s, she's had a career, she's gone to school, she's had a good life for herself. Now it's time to settle down and get married, and she found, she found the right guy. Go on, Mary, get it. But what we find is that Mary was actually probably 13 years old. And she probably barely knew Joseph at all. Because this was just commonplace. The writer, Luke, didn't have to explain the intricacies of this system because, see, he was writing to people who were part of the system. It was just normal. They knew what he was talking about. But we are reading something that's 2,000 years old. And so Mary was this 13-year-old girl who was betrothed to be married. Probably that betrothal probably lasted anywhere from 6 to 12 months. And then she goes to live with them, and they consummate the marriage, and they have babies, and the story goes on. But like I've said, that 13-year-old situation has just thrown me for a loop. I don't get it. Doesn't seem wise. See, I have an almost 13-year-old. I point over there because she's usually sitting over there. We have four kids, me and my wife. Sadie's the oldest. She's 12 and a half, and then we've got three, three boys. Now, Sadie has been our angel. She's just... An incredible, remarkable kid. We've got the three boys who are all younger than her, and they're all really close in age. And our three boys, I, I describe them usually, you guys know, as monkeys. Because literally, they act more like monkeys than human beings. I mean, my boys are a situation. 
They are just causing mess and chaos, screaming, fighting, laughing, pulling down pants, doing all sorts of things all over the house. It's like a big cloud of dust follows them around like in a cartoon. I'm not joking. God gave them to me to test me and to make me a better man, but usually, usually I fail that test. But Sadie, God gave her to me to make that all okay. Redeem some things. See, Sadie has been literally just our star child. And I asked her permission to share about her, by the way. Sadie's been our star child. She's, she's just wonderful. She's fr- like immediately was responsible and just says yes and rarely gets in trouble and is a delight to be around. She's, she's incredible. She's great at school. It's just easy for her. She's dedicated. She's a hard worker. She's popular at school, but she doesn't even know it. It's the best kind of popular. Her teachers always love her. She's just like glowing. And then... She turned 12. And our Sadie, tur- it, it was like she got multiple personalities. And she turned into this little 70-pound ball of crazy sometimes, where at the drop of a hat, she's just angry, and I have no idea why. Not at all. And it happens so quickly. I have no idea. Me and my wife are just confounded by this little 12-and-a-half-year-old thing. And it just... In a moment, our house dynamic is completely different. We're like, what is going on? Where'd you go? Now, when I share this with men who don't have daughters, they're like, oof, whoa. When I share this with women, usually I get, oh yeah, I, I was a real bad person to my parents when I was that age. I told this to a gal at the gym a couple weeks ago, and she was like, ah, I'm still apologizing to my mom from the things that I said and did when I was that age. (laughs) Gives me a little joy, a little comfort, but she's in her adolescence, and she's changing, and I've got to figure out and love her through it and walk with her through it and give her space to be that adolescent, temperamental, whatever she is. Just got to love her through it. That's what we do. That's what we're, we're parents, but she's, she's in that stage, this adolescence, and what's helped me, though, is Sarah just decided, I can't figure this out, so I'm going to go to some smarter people than me. So Sarah, my wife, started reading books about the adolescent brain, just trying to figure out this thing. And we've got three more of these things coming. God have mercy. But as Sarah started to research the, the adolescent brain, lights started to go off, and it actually, we didn't intend this to happen, but it helped me figure out Mary a little bit more and understand her. Because what we find is that adolescence is actually a modern thing. Adolescence wasn't a thing more than about 150 years ago. Adolescence started happening in the mid to late 1800s, in the mid to late 19th century. And what happened was the Industrial Revolution happened. And all of a sudden, we started getting child labor laws where kids couldn't work anymore. And we started having a normal expectation that an education should be given to every kid. And we had a school system, and all of a sudden, you have, you, we, we, we took responsibility away from children who were working, who weren't getting an education, who were just jumping in right with the adults, and all of a sudden, we gave this, them this season to figure things out and to have 
less responsibility than adults. And you, so you have this phase from 10 to about 20, and many researchers will say adolescence for many reaches into the mid-20s. I, I can testify to that myself. I was way more of an adolescent than an adult at 24. But now we have adolescence where you can figure things out, where you journey from becoming a, going from a child to an adult, and it's a 10 to 15-year-long phase. In the ancient world, adolescence wasn't a thing, actually. Children didn't go through, through adolescence. They went from being a, a little, little baby, basically a little tiny little one, into being a, basically a fully functioning adult because from, researchers would say Mary, from just soon after she could walk, was helping her out around the house and working and expected to have responsibilities every single day. Two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, they are, they are pivotal for, letting, for making the house actually happen, making, making the home and the family actually work. Mary was not some 13-year-old girl who had no responsibility, who was having slumber parties, texting her friends. Mary was strong, had dirt under her fingernails, and was helping her home actually function. And they didn't have an adolescent phase, so Mary wasn't this, this angsty teenager. She was a young woman who was strong, who kept her family going. Research, researcher says this, stoves in the home needed to be tended in the ancient world. Beds needed to be made. Homes needed to be kept in repair. Food needed to be prepared. Animals needed to be tended, whether one was on a farm or in a village, they just still had to tend animals. Food needed to be prepared for the future, so meat and vegetables needed to be preserved. Water had to be drawn from cisterns and from wells. An incredible amount of work had to be done every day, and it was done primarily by women and girls. So when you think of Mary, don't think of your average American 13-year-old. Think of this gritty, strong, ex experienced young woman who's probably had a parent die, who's probably had multiple loved ones around her die, siblings, just had to process that and, and work that into her, her story and her experience. She's been hauling dozens of pounds of water for miles back and forth to her home and keeping the home going and slaughtering animals and, and preparing them. And, and basically, she's doing all the things that we, we would do as a 20-something. Mary's running her home, and she's ready now to run her own home. Studying, studying the adolescent brain has helped me understand, Mary, that we're not talking about this delicate little thing, we're talking about a woman who then, it helps me understand this yes that Mary gives. When God, the angel arrives and says, I want to turn your world upside down. We're going to think about the radical nature of God's, God's call to Mary. And she's strong enough and independent enough to say, I'm yours, God. Turn my world upside down. Yes. We're going to, through this lens, this lens of this young woman, this, this strong, strong young woman who then worships God with this beautiful picture and proclamation of who God is and what, where God is and what he's doing among his people and what kind of people God's about. It came from this strong young woman who just said yes.
We've turned Christmas, we talk about this all the time, but it's the reality. We've turned Christmas into something that it isn't. We've just, in our culture, we've turned Christmas into this basically kind of corporate, consumeristic-driven financial event, basically. Our economy depends on Christmas. We've turned Christmas into a Pinterest explosion of crafting, of making our houses and our church buildings and everything look just perfect, just popping, oozing with, with yuletide. We've turned Christmas into this sanitized, fun thing, but actually, friends, Mary's kind of inviting us into a different kind of story into an unsanitized version of Christmas, the real deal. And I think maybe it might resonate with some of us this season. Are you feeling like your world maybe is a little bit messy, dirty, isn't exactly the way it should be? Mary's speaking to us, telling us that's what Christmas is all about. See, because when your world is messy and a little bit dirty, a little bit out of sorts, that happens to be just when God shows up. It just happens. Are you, since, is there some longing in your world? Are you dealing with some unfulfilled dreams maybe or some, some just expecting some things and things that aren't turning out the way you thought? That's right where God speaks in those moments. Are you feeling a little insignificant, maybe? Maybe that's been your story. I'm on the sidelines. I'm unimportant, insignificant, along for the ride. Mary's going to tell you, that's my story. And that's right where God called me into the middle of his crazy story. This, friends, is what Christmas is all about. God breaking through in the mundane, in the mess, not in the temple, not in the palace, in Nazareth, in the dusty, on the dusty feet and the strong hands of this young woman who just says yes. Let's journey with her together and learn and walk as she walks with this call from God. Let's stand and pray. Father, I'm not going to pray to Mary, but I'm going to tell you thank you for Mary. Thank you for this remarkable young woman that I get to learn from. Thank you for this story, God, that tells me about who you are, that you're working in and through the most unexpected people. That you're working in and through and showing up in the most unexpected times, in the most unexpected places. So would you, would you remind us now? I'm here. Even in your sorrow, in your loss, in your broken marriage, in your disappointment, in your longing, in your, in your chaos, in your brokenness, in your sin, in your addiction, I'm here. The incarnate one, Jesus is ever arriving. And so we welcome you, Jesus. 
We welcome this divine arrival. We welcome God in the flesh who comes to, to be with his people. We welcome this absurdity that changed everything for humanity. We stand in the midst of it and we fill our, would you fill us with wonder? Would you fill us with awe? Would you fill us with worship? Would you change the way we think about things because of the incarnation? Thank you, Father. And so now we worship you. Just this opportunity to fill ourselves with more wonder is just to sing these songs that are full of it. To take in the glory by singing it out. So we fill this place with wonder and awe and worship. And I want to remind you as we begin, friends, I've got a couple of friends who I love and trust, and they would love to pray for you. If you need prayer for about anything, they'd love to give it to you. And then let's just end our time together with just filling ourselves and filling this place with wonder and worship.